coming at you from the Wee Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 65 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by my co-hosts, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. Now, guys, we are coming at you with a, a full episode today since, uh, obviously, for our you know diehard fans, they know that we did not produce an episode last week, and Kevin will get into that in just a moment, but we've got three amazing guests on today's show. We've got Ginny Dial-Creech from the Houston Chronicle. She's a sports columnist, talks of everything from uh, you know Rockets to high school football to even the comedy. So I think everyone's going to uh, enjoy that. Also, stay tuned for her picks on uh, best Mexican restaurants within the city of Houston. Also, we've got Terrence Ganaway, a former Baylor running back who was the 2011 Alamo Bowl MVP, joining us to preview uh, the first half of the Bears season. Also, what we can expect for Baylor heading into Texas this week for the big rivalry game. Also, we're going to close things out with Troy Rink from Denver 7, formerly of the Denver Post. He's going to preview the Monday night football game between the Houston Texans and the Denver Broncos. But guys, it's good to finally be back stateside after a week in France. And uh, although we didn't produce an episode last week, uh, Kevin, do you want to kind of explain why? Yeah, we, we did some debating. We talked about uh, it being uh, my one-year anniversary on the show. Uh, should we do like a best-of episode? Should we kind of mix some things together? We talked about a lot of different things, and ultimately what we decided uh, was that the deadline for releasing a week's episode had passed, and the decision was totally moot. So I, I feel like in retrospect, in hindsight, looking back, um, that was that was our reward for a year of work well done. We got a week off. I think most people, Jim Rome takes like 18 weeks of vacation a year, so I think <laughs> one week of vacation is not out of line for us, and, uh, and I feel like I am re-energized recharged and we've got some really terrific interviews on this week so if anybody was disappointed I didn't hear from them which was also a little bit uh, disappointing in and of itself nobody really texted me or called me or DM'd me to say like what's going on are you guys still a show so that was concerning but uh, but we're back we're back and we are re-energized I actually had a handful of people text me and tell me uh, you know they were disappointed that we didn't have a show this week so uh, we are back with a vengeance here in episode 65 but uh, it's worth noting that a lot of our listener base is in the city of Houston and uh, this week we were uh, stricken with the sad news that Bob Allen, the longtime sports anchor at KTRK, passed away at the age of 70 after a long battle with cancer. And uh, it's kind of uh, disheartening to see uh, such a legend, such a guy that, you know, probably inspired all three of us pass away. But, uh, you know, he was responsible for so many of my, you know, greatest sports memories. I mean, growing up, we didn't have cable TV, we didn't have Sports Center. Uh, so to be able to get the highlights of the Astros games or, you know, back then the Oilers or the Rockets, we had to tune in to ABC and watch him. So it's uh, absolutely tragic to lose a legend such as Bob Allen. And I'm curious, uh, Jeremy, you also grew up in the city and, you know, you probably have a lot of sports memories. What is one takeaway that you're going to have from um, Bob Allen? Oh, gosh, uh, I can remember back. Uh, Bob Allen was sort of a staple of uh, my my household growing up. I mean, he was the sports guy. So, um, and really, if you look at his career, I mean, he spanned across several generations generations of Houston sports fans. So, he will be remembered by a lot of people. But I can remember specifically uh, back when the Rockets took uh, the national 
uh, or the, you know, they won the, the championship in 94, 95 clutch city. I remember him very well, very vividly then, you know, talking about the African commentary, what the wins meant for Houston and what it was like to have a, a really good uh, program in the city. So really, really saddens me to see him go. It was kind of sudden for me. I didn't know he was that sick, but, um, it really is sad. And I'm, I, his, his family's in my prayers, Bob Allen passing away at the age of 70 and, uh, Kevin, it's definitely taken a lot of the sports media, uh, you know, a lot of the sports media, Kevin, has reflected uh, fondly on Bob Allen this past week. And I'm, I'm curious, you are a member of the sports media here in the city of Houston. Uh, what were some of your thoughts after learning of Bob's passing? Well, you know, actually, as I've been out, even at like the high school games I've been going to and just people I've talked to, I've been on the radio a couple times, podcasts, things like that. And everybody I've spoken to that's in this area has been like, hey, did you know Bob Allen personally? I'm sad to say I did not. I-, I wish I could have because it seems like he has touched everyone's life and virtually everyone that I ran into that was, you know, of a certain age or older had some sort of memory or recollection of him personally and how he touched their lives. Even Jenny Creech, uh, who's going to be on in a minute, uh, she had, you know, a great deal of things to say about the way he impacted her career and just the, the presence he had within this sports media market. And we have David Barron, who was on the podcast not too long ago talking Olympic stuff, wrote um, a really touching uh, um, uh, memorial eulogy, what have you, um, obituary, I guess you could call it, on The Chronicle, kind of talking about Bob Allen. And, you know, he talked about, uh, he obviously he was a very well-tenured sportscaster, you know, 38 years at Channel 13. Uh, he was the nightly pipeline to the Oilers, Astros, and Rockets, and other pro college and high school teams for hundreds of thousands of viewers on Houston's most watched newscasts. And while chronicling some of the most memorable moments in Houston sports history, he also became a friend and benefactor to dozens of young men and women through his work with the Sunshine Kids and Special Olympics. And this is a quote from him in a 2013 interview. He said, I really did get to live my dream. I did what I love to do, and I did it for a pretty long Long time without ever having to leave my hometown. And that just uh, exemplifies or typifies exactly the sort of things that I love to celebrate. A guy who was true to this city, who was a part of the fabric of this city, who is vital in, in connecting uh, people together, you know, people that enjoy sports and kind of have those shared memories and shared uh, moments. And uh, I think he will not be forgotten. He was beloved and deservedly so. And it went well beyond just what he did for sports, you know, obviously reaching out and just touching people uh, in a multitude of ways. So he will be missed. I, I regret that I didn't know him personally, but he he impacted even me. Again, Bob Allen passing away at the age of 70. And uh, Jenny Dow Creech will mention uh, kind of some her some of her inspirations uh, that she had had from Bob Allen, some of her experiences. But uh, definitely prayers up from the family. And if you've got a great memory of Bob Allen, make sure to tweet us at our social media channels. Just go ahead and send us a comment at Weekly Brewcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Also check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. Uh, but, you know, guys, episode 65, uh, this is my first episode back here here in the United States since uh, being in France for 10 days. And when I was actually in Nice, I saw a, uh, a restaurant there and it said, We Gelato. And I think that might be, I guess, uh, a distant cousin of We Desserts. Kevin, can you confirm that? Uh, I believe it's a blatant ripoff. So I am I'm starting the process of getting some paperwork together. We're going to sue them. Uh, we're pretty sure that we had We Desserts over here first. So um, so that's still in the works. But uh, don't the lesson here is don't accept substitutes. We Desserts is the best uh, that there is. In this country, in any country, maybe in the world, uh, 3411 Kirby is where they reside. You can reach them by phone, uh, email, a multitude of different ways. But basically what they do is they design and create the most delicious desserts anywhere on this planet and maybe else. 
elsewhere. We still have yet to explore uh, the far reaches of the galaxy, but I think that if we do, we're not going to find anywhere more delicious than we desserts. So if you're a listener uh, of this podcast and you tell them such, you get a 10% discount off your order, and you can make that a really huge order and uh, save yourself a lot of money that way and get a bunch of delicious treats. If you're planning some sort of event, you want to impress somebody, uh, snacks are the way to someone's heart, I've been told. Um, it's never worked for me, but I think it's worked for other people. Uh, you can certainly do that at We Desserts. Just talk to Penny and Jen there. Tell them that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by, and they'll hook you up. Make sure to visit We Desserts at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. Tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. You'll get 10% off of your entire order, as Kevin had just mentioned. But uh, we have a fun episode in store for you today. We've got uh, three amazing interviews. We're going to lead things off with Jenny Dalkreach, uh, diving into all things Houston sports. Also, we've got Terrence Ganaway, former Baylor great, previewing uh, the, the back half of the Baylor football season, as well as the big game against Texas this week. Also, we're going to close things out with a great interview with uh, Troy Brink from Denver 7, previewing the Monday night football game on Monday between the Houston Texans and the Denver Broncos. So without further ado, we've got a packed show on deck. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Ginny Dial-Creech, a sports columnist at the Houston Chronicle. And Ginny, first off, welcome to the show. And secondly, congrats on the promotion to sports columnist. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. I love y'all's show. Well, we're glad that you're a fan. And, you know, I noticed on your Twitter account recently that you had uh, brought a friend to El Tiempo and, uh, you know, introduced them to fajitas. And, you know, I'm an absolutely huge fan of Tex-Mex. And I know this is typically not where we start on our podcast. But uh, when I moved down to Houston, uh, I moved to a place that, you know, probably has about, I don't know, 12 Tex-Mex restaurants within a 1.5 mile radius. And I'm curious, from your perspective, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. We've got so many people coming in town for, you know, U of H football, Texans games. If you're recommending one spot or one dish for out-of-towners, where would you tell them to go? I I would recommend the beef fajitas at El Tiempo. I'm a total Tex-Mex snob. I grew up on the south side of San Antonio, so I actually think, like, going to the north side of San Antonio is going too far away. (laughs) <laughs> for a good <laughs> so I've really, I've really found my spots in Houston, and uh, all my friends make fun of me because I go to certain restaurants for a certain dish. So I think Sylvia's for um, enchiladas. I think uh, Laredo Taquera on Washington for breakfast tacos. I think El Tiempo for beef fajitas. I have a little hole in the wall uh, over on the west side of town where I live where I really like the chicken fajitas. So it's really funny because I'll I'll only go to certain places for a certain dish because I sort of really scope out who does everything well. And before we jump into uh, kind of your background, I have one last question for you. Best margarita, where is it in town? You know, the, I don't think their food is amazing, but Cyclone and I has, has the best margaritas. So if you're an out-of-town guest, make sure to hit up Ginny on Twitter. She will tell you where to go and get the best Tex-Mex. But Ginny, you've been uh, working with the Chronicle since 2005. Uh, you got your start working high school sports. And to me, it seems like the you know the best way to break into a new city and truly understand you know the fabric of a community is working in high school athletics. And you've been able to cover some great athletes. Uh, you know, Andy Dalton is one that comes to mind. What is the best experience or best memory that you've had covering high school athletics within the city? Gosh, so, so many. I I can't even tell you how fortunate I've been. I mean, I covered Andy Dalton and Andrew Luck and um, on in basketball, so many others. I mean, I came, I got here right at the end of DeAndre Jordan playing in high school here. Um, 
you know, NECA Aguimake, Shanae Aguimake, Brittany Griner, just all these amazing athletes who've gone on to do great things. And, you know, I really try to always think about those big games and those big moments. And a few really stand out. And I'm going to say the wrong year because they all run together. But there was one year, 2008 maybe, um, where it was Pearland versus Cy Fair in um, – maybe the third round of the playoffs. It was at Rice Stadium, and it was Fozzie Whitaker and Sam McGuffey, who at the time was, like, the leading rusher, rusher in the area, and that game was wild. It was so much fun. And then um, I covered that um, Pearland and Katie game, also at Rice Stadium, that had 38,000 fans show up for, I, I believe it was just the first or second round of the playoffs. I mean, it was, it was crazy that that many people showed up and the game was wild, and, you know, I think it was like 38-35, something like that for the finals. Really close, good game. And, of course, state championships. I, I've seen some really top-notch performances, um, so many. Braylon Addison was always one of my favorites to watch out of Hightower, and he's, he's starting his NFL career now. They do all make me feel exceptionally old, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really been cool just to, see, um, just to see these kids go on and do great things, whether it's on the football field or not. There's several that I, I run into from time to time that are doing wonderful things, you know, outside of the, the realm of football or basketball or, or whatever else. I just, I just think it's great to um, – high school sports it's, when people ask me my favorite things to cover high school football and um the nba are the two things and, and the nba because i love basketball so much but high school football because the sheer joy and just talent and everything is so raw and exciting it's, it's the best i mean it's the best and to do that in houston i you know I don't care what anyone says. This is the absolute best city in the country to watch high school football. And I would I would go head-to-head with anyone on that. I tend to agree. And, and i got to say, your career track, Jenny, is an inspiration because I find myself doing high school about 85% of the time. So I, I, I like that there's some upward mobility there. Actually, you know, since the Cron bought, uh, bought my company, I'm pretty sure you're one of my, like, 20 bosses now. I need to figure out the org chart. But uh, but I think I do, in some sense, report to you. But but so you are now a columnist. What, uh, how has that shift worked? You've been an editor. You've been a beat writer. You've done a lot of things for the Chronicle. How's the transition going? Because we've been following your work, and i got to say I enjoy what you're coming up with. And, uh, and how are you, I guess, enjoying that transition so far? I'm loving it. I, um, I've i always wanted to be a columnist. I didn't know that this would be the road I would take to get there, but it, it, it was my career aspiration to end up a columnist someday. Um, and I'm, I don't have all the experience in the world. It's something I'll have to kind of learn as I go, but I do know Houston and I know Houston sports and I feel like that's going to help me a lot. I also have I have a different voice, and I'm a pretty opinionated um, person, so I think that that can go a long way in this market, um, a long way in making people happy and a long way in making people really unhappy with what I have to say. But I think it's important to have uh, a different voice, a female voice. I think it's great for this area. There's a lot of really knowledgeable and hardcore female sports fans in this market, um, and it's I think it's unfortunate that there's not more women covering sports here to represent that that side of things. But it's um, it's just such a good good market for sports that it makes it 
I don't want to say it makes it easy to cover, but it there's so much to talk about all the time that I, I feel like the transition for me is going really well because there's so much to say. And because people in Houston tend to be pretty intelligent sports fans, that goes a long way. You can you can really get into things in a way that I, I don't think other markets you can. So so that helps a lot. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the Rockets there. We'll talk a little bit of Rockets in a second. But but first of all, you're you're a, a president. You're associated with the Association for Women in Sports, and you mentioned uh, maybe not enough women uh, covering sports. What is it you guys do there at the Association for Women in Sports? And is that kind of the thing you're trying to change or alter, or trying to show girls that that's something they can grow up to do? Yeah, definitely. It's a it's an organization. We're actually in our 30th year, so um, which just goes to show that it really hasn't been that long uh, since women were were able to cover sports. I mean, we just weren't um, taken very seriously for a long time. Women weren't allowed in locker rooms, so they'd be given, like, the backup punter to talk to after a game and <laughs> wouldn't be able to get the same kind of stories that their their male colleagues would. And so, um, you know, women in this industry have certainly come a long way. Not ideal still, um, but I think that's more from the – end of the people who follow us and read us not so much the teams or the players anymore i've personally had um been very fortunate in this market um with the way that coaches and players have treated me uh i've I've always encountered a lot of respect which i think says a lot about houston and about the teams here but it's not the case everywhere um but yeah our organization we have about 700 members uh, that are in pr broadcast uh, you know, print journalism, covering sports, and we have male members too. It's all about just supporting women who want to do this for a living and, you know, how you can get better, how you can do things the right way, how you can network and meet people um, to get those those high-profile jobs because, as you guys know, there's not very many female sports columnists in the country. I can count them, you know. And, um, you know, even being an editor, there, there are very, very few female sports editors, so very few females in sports making any kind of decisions. And it just, it just doesn't match the fan base. I mean, 38% of, and I do know that that's the correct number because I literally just looked this up the other day, um, <laughs> 30% of fans of the NFL are, are women. So to not have 38% of the women covering it, you're not getting the right, you know, you're not getting all the right voices. So I think it's important to represent the area really well. And in Houston, one of the greatest things about the city is it's so diverse and it's so big and people are from everywhere and there are men and women who love sports. And because of that, it's important to have a lot of different voices and a lot of different views, um, you know, talking about them. And, and we're getting there. We really are. i you know, I've really grown. This is my home now. I love this city, and I love that about this city, that there's sort of a place for everyone to, to belong here. And I think that we do that well when it comes to, to covering the area. Well, we're glad that you decided to uh, leave San Antonio and come here after uh, going to Oklahoma. And uh, I think that it's just great that you are now one of the sports columnists here at the Houston Chronicle. But uh, one of the things that I want to ask you real quick is uh, growing up in the city for me, uh, Bob Allen was a guy that I always looked up to in sports. And he passed away uh, this past week after a long battle with cancer. And, and uh, you know, he was a guy that I looked up to. And I'm kind of curious, when you decided that you wanted to go into sports journalism, who were some of your inspirations? Yeah, that's a great question. And that, oh, 
just terrible news about Bob Allen. This and um, one of the, I guess, one of the positives, if there is any that come out of that, is seeing the sports community really come together um, and say such wonderful things and, and share their memories about him. It's really been, uh, it's, it's really been a beautiful thing to see. Honestly, just to see his reach and his impact. I, I think that says a lot about him and his career here. Um, for me, I, you know, I grew up in a house where we read the newspaper every day, and I'm so grateful to have a, a dad who um, did that. You know, we we read the newspaper together, and so a lot of the people that wrote in San Antonio are are people that I look up to. I um, there's a columnist in San Antonio who is a friend of mine now, Buck Harvey, and and he's one of the ones that. I, you know, always read and always liked, and I, you know, I'm grateful that I got to meet guys like that, and Kirk Bowles in Austin, I always really, really liked his work, and he's somebody who I really like personally now, so that's cool, (laughs) you know, how it works out as you get older, and, um, you know, we just, the other thing is, I, you know, I grew up watching the Spurs, and people in Houston won't love this, but I was a child, and I was the team that was there, but (laughs) things like... You know, we would see, I can remember um, meeting David Robinson when I was a kid and him letting me just talk his ear off, you know. And when you're at a young age and someone you look up to like that lets you do that, I it, it never crossed my mind like I'm a girl and I can't do this because, you know, I had really good experiences when I was young. And um, my brother is a basketball coach now overseas. He coaches for FIBA. So it's just always a part of our lives. And I looked up to athletes, and I would never shut up about basketball. So it just seems sort of logical <laughs> to do this as <laughs> my career. You know, that kind of ties into something I wanted to ask. We asked Hunter Atkins this when he was on last week or, or two weeks ago, and I'm curious as to your perspective. Uh, what do you think is the value or significance of sports? Because I, I majored in creative writing. I had aspirations to be, like, I don't know, a novelist or, or something like that. Uh, but I found myself drawn to sports, and guys like Tom Wolfe and John Updike and Hunter S. Thompson, you know, serious writers, wrote about sports a great deal. What is it that you think uh, about sports that kind of captures our attention and makes uh, makes sports important to us? different like from the journalism standpoint for me there's different ways to look at that because I always always loved sports but for a while there when I went to college I was like I'll probably do political journalism like that's you know that's what you see on tv a lot and oh thank god I am not covering politics right now but it's like (laughs) there's there's just uh something that the thing that draws me is it's so challenging right like the deadlines and the drama and that like it's such a rush to me every time I cover something and I think that there's there's a lot to be said for that when you're when you're a journalist and you love that feeling um sports are is where you can get it every day I mean I feel like and I have a lot of really good friends who cover everything else and I I think they do an amazing job I'm really proud of all my colleagues at the Chronicle but you know, they have election night once every four years or whatever, and they bring in pizza, <laughs> and they have, like, this whole thing. And I'm like, that is every single night in sports. Like, you go into a game, and you have no idea who's going to win or no idea what you're going to ride, and you're watching it down to the wire, and then you're turning something around in a really short amount of time. And 
if you're covering a team that loses, it's really hard to get the coach or the players to say something, but you have to. And I think because of all of those things, you see all these great writers challenge themselves by writing about sports because it's the hardest thing to cover. And it's also so valued in our society. Everyone has a team. Everyone pays attention. Everyone, uh, you know, has an opinion. It's just, you know, everyone's still going to read the sports page. So no offense to anyone else, but it's still going to be one of the most read things in the paper all the time. So I think for that, it's one of, it's kind of one of those things where you, you start doing it and it's such a rush. It's hard to give that up. You know, I, I'd have a hard time going into another section of the paper right now because I, I do feel like a lot of the things that I write matter in a lot of ways. And um, particularly right now, there's so many social issues in sports to cover off the field that there there's a place for that. There's a place to, to do great things by covering sports. I agree. And, you know, I, I work in high school sports, cover the sci-fair area, and I just feel an intense sense of belonging, which is something you mentioned a minute ago. And I just feel like people in the community connect. And I, I get a rush from covering sports and covering the accomplishments of these kids that these parents are so proud of and the communities rally around. It's really, really cool for me. So I, I totally agree with that assessment. But um, transitioning into the into the pro sports scene, you, know, you mentioned the Rockets a minute ago, and you wrote a piece about Jeff Bezelik. Uh, kind of, you know, one of the questions, I think everybody is pretty sure this team's going to be uh, at least good, if not great, on offense. You have James Harden, Mike D'Antoni system, uh, much vaunted offensive talent and so forth. But with the defense, you, you wrote about him. How much of a difference does it make having him orchestrate that defense? And did the Rockets have the pieces to be, like, say, I don't know, a top 10 defensive team in the NBA? Well, they wanna, if they want to win a championship is what they say. I mean, look, the Rockets aren't winning a championship this year. It's just they could get a lot better and they could be really good. But history tells us you don't do what they did last year and then turn around and win a title next year. So they they can climb, though, and they can get a lot better. Um, but if they want to, they, they need to be a top defensive team. The best teams, if you go back like the last 15 years or whatever, and you look at the teams that have made it to the finals and made it deep in the playoffs, are they're not one-sided. You know, they're, they're in the top five or six in offense and defense, and – um, if the Rockets want to be this great team that they aspire to be, they've got to be good defensively. Now, they didn't go grab any pieces to make them defensive, you know, monsters or anything, but they did go get the right guy. I mean, they went and got the right coach to come in and, and put an emphasis on that, and that says something to me. And I don't know. It's just going to be interesting. I look at guys like, you know, you lose you lose Dwight Howard, and I – I know a lot of people have whatever they want to say about Dwight Howard, but hands down, like he's one of those guys left in the NBA that alters the way you play against the team just just by existing, right? So if he's in the paint, you change the way that you try to score because he's he's a true center and that position is starting to go away and it's not – everyone doesn't have one, so it alters the way you play the game. Clint Capella doesn't have that presence. Will he at some point? Maybe. He does not right now. Um, now you have Pat Beverly, who is hurt again. So that's your other best defender. Um, so I don't know. Can Trevor Reason and Corey Brewer play defense? Yeah. Can James Harden? Yeah, we've seen him play defense. Does he do it much? <laughs> no. So I – 
I just don't know. I think that they did the right thing and got the right guy. Now let's see if they listen to him. All we've seen so far is, you know, preseason, which might as well be a whole bunch of all-star games. Nobody plays any defense in those. So I'll, I'm really, really curious. I like Bizdelic. I I sat and talked to him that day when I wrote that. I He and I talked for 30 minutes. And I'm a, I'm a defense person. Like, I really look for that. My brother has made me scout many, many game films over many, many years, and I'm usually scouting, you know, the offense and thinking of it that way. So I noticed things a lot, and the things that Bazelic was saying were perfect. I mean, that's what you want to hear. So if he can get them to buy into it, if he can get them to do the things that he emphasizes, I think that's going to be huge for the Rockets, and I think they will be an improved team. Um, but we all know you can say a lot of things, but what they actually do is what's going to make the difference. So we're going to know in a few days. <laughs> we're going to know soon if they're going to actually play defense or not. <laughs> so it totally makes sense now that you're a Spurs fan with Pop and the emphasis on defense. So I totally get that now. But uh, kind of transitioning a little bit to uh, the Rockets, you had mentioned the preseason, how it's just essentially glorified exhibition games. But uh, at the time that we're recording, the Rockets are 5-1 and one in the preseason with uh, an overtime loss to Memphis. Uh, the Rockets open up the season against the Lakers Wednesday night at the Staples Center, 9.30 tip-off here in Houston. Can we expect any of that preseason success to translate over, or should we not even look at the preseason to kind of uh, look and see how this team will perform this year? Oh, yeah. I mean, the preseason tells you a lot. It, it tells you what lineups work, and it tells you who can play well together. And I mean, I think it's told us a little bit about Ryan Anderson and, and Eric Gordon, how they fit in with the team. So there are certainly things that you can get out of preseason. It's it's not a waste, but you're you're also just not seeing everyone play their hardest defense, and you're not seeing what a team's game plan is going to be from start to finish because they're gonna they're gonna be trying things. It's your time to try different lineups and different rotations and who you're gonna sub in and sub out. So we're gonna get a better sense of that obviously when the season starts. And they'll still be tweaking. I mean, D'Antoni's not going to have his lineup perfect by then, but we're going to have a much better idea of where his head's at. We're going to have an idea of who he likes to play together and how long he's going to play them together. We're going to get a sense of, will he try to rest James Harden? James Harden has played, I think, the last two seasons more minutes than anyone. Um, And James Harden's a terrific basketball player, but – that's going to be really difficult for him to do that a third year in a row. Like, they're going to have to get him some rest when they can. Um, so we're going to see how D'Antoni tries to manage that. We saw what McHale tried to do. Like, he'd pull in for most of the third quarter and put him back in in the fourth. I don't know if that'll be the same kind of thing D'Antoni does. So I just think that um, the preseason, you can definitely get glimpses of what you're going to get, but there's so much experimenting happening. It's really, really hard to get a true sense of what a team's going to look like until you get to that to the regular season. I have to say that I am I'm somewhat jealous of what I perceive to be uh, your autonomy and, and being able to pick your stories and kind of choose what you write about because you write about a lot of interesting stuff. And one piece that, that stood out to me was the comments. Yeah, I think you wrote a very passionate, interesting piece about the comments as we're kind of watching to see whether the Lynx uh, tie the comments for the four WNBA championships, uh, which I think may happen as we're recording this tonight. Uh, I need to double-check on that. But but what you wrote about them was that yeah, they meant something to you. Watching women compete at the highest level uh, did something for you, and you felt did something for girls uh, in this city 
Committee as well. I don't even really know exactly the story behind why the Comets failed. I wonder if you could shed some light on that. And also kind of what do you think uh, the city has lost and is it something we can get back? Is there even a shot at getting a WNBA team back here? Yeah, so I actually, when I first started here, I covered high school football, but I also covered the Comets. That was my first beat. And um, this city went crazy for that team. And and it was very clear to me and, and really cool to me. I had just come from Oklahoma where, uh, you know, Sherry Cole was relatively new and women's basketball there was really taking off. And it was cool. I mean, I'm I'm not going to ever stand here and say, hey, look, the WNBA is just as good as the NBA. It's not. It's the level is not the same, and I'm, I get that. I just do think in a city like this, there's a place for both, and that we saw that happen. We saw the way this city was really passionate about that team, and um, then the team, Les Alexander sold the team, and the guy who bought them just didn't know what he was doing. It wasn't his fault. He was a passionate guy. He just never owned a sports franchise before and before long and it didn't it just didn't last and the the WNBA really led everyone on they were like we'll float them for a year while we find a buyer and this city went nuts like all these people I broke that story and all these people like the mayor was calling me and was like we're gonna find a buyer this is too important it's the only dynasty which it is and you know they won four straight titles and then it just it never happened. Like, all of those players got a phone call that um, the team was folding, and that was it. It was like two months after everyone said they were going to try to keep it alive. And then there was talk like, oh, we really want to try to get a, a team back in Houston, but there's, you know, there's no plans for immediate expansion. They can't expand. The league is doing okay right now, but it's not doing great. They can't add teams. So all these promises were just flat out broken, and uh, that it, it's really sad the way it all ended because that was the year of Hurricane Ike. They didn't even play their last game in Houston. No one knew it was going to be their last game ever. So there was no celebration of any sort for a team that brought four championships to the city and used to sell out the Compact Center. You know, the, this is a team that used to pack in fifteen thousand fans a game and. So you, it, it's, you can't convince me that they didn't have a place in the sports scene here because everything – this city's too big not to have anything at once sports-wise, quite frankly. You could sport anything you wanted here because it's so big and so diverse and the, the sports fans here are passionate. So I think it's really a shame that how all of that went down and the fact that no one has brought them back or brought a team back here. I think it's really sad that – there's like one small corner in the Toyota Center that has, um, you know, a Cynthia Cooper jersey, but like, there's nowhere to put their championship trophies, and there's nowhere to like, for them to come home to, and for fans to get excited the, the way they do when they see a Olajuwon at Rockets games, you know, like, Cheryl Swoops would get that kind of attention here, but there's nowhere for her to go, you know, it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad the way it all ended um, because this is truly a city that could support that well. Yeah, I definitely remember watching uh, Cheryl Swoops and Cynthia Cooper, and uh, they were great for the city winning those four straight championships. But one thing that has been great for the city uh, here in the past two years is Tom Herman at U of H. And uh, one last question for you is that you wrote back on September 29th that, quote, the best job for Tom Herman may be his current one. And with the past week and the Big 12 electing not to expand, do you still feel that that is the case? Yeah, maybe not. 
<laughs> I, I really, really thought UH was getting in the Big 12. And it was like, you know what? If UH is a Power 5 school, and with what he's done here and the way he can recruit in this city, that could be a better job. And it still could be a better job than a lot of places. Like, if Kentucky or Kansas or a Power 5 team like that comes calling, I, I you know, obviously think this is better, but if it's the University of Texas or if it's LSU, it'd be hard to say, you know you're not going to a Power 5 now, what do you do? I think it'd be hard to blame him for wanting to go to one of those schools. Um, but, man, I really thought UH was getting in. I think everyone did. You know, um, I don't know. I have all kinds of theories about that. We could be here all night. But <laughs> I I really, really thought that UH would be in a Power 5, probably in the Big 12 within the next two years, and that uh, that would be a great place for Tom Herman to be. I think we all thought that was going to happen. And uh, one of the past guests that we had on the show, Lindsay Schnell, she actually tweeted out this past week that perhaps the reason why the Big 12 even toyed with the idea of expansion is to get some of the, the heat off of Baylor. So that's uh, an interesting theory there. But uh... My theory, too, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they were at Big 12 media days and a whole bunch of people were asking about Baylor. And then someone asked about expansion and the Big 12 was like, oh, let's just go with that for a while. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, you know, I think we can blame Baylor for this one, too. Well, as a, uh, a Baylor alum, I'll go ahead and take that blame. <laughs> I think having uh, U of H in the Big 12 would not be good for our interests. But, uh, uh, Jenny, we absolutely appreciate uh, you taking the time and joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And you're very active on social media, whether it's covering sports, giving us hot tips on Mexican restaurants within the city. Uh, for those listeners out there that might not follow you already, what is the best way for them to connect with you online? Um, Twitter and Instagram, I'm at... Jenny Dial Creech. I know that's not very creative, but it makes me easy to find. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you read any of my stuff online, my email address is right there at the bottom of every story. So always feel free to reach out. Well, Jenny, we appreciate it. And again, congratulations on the new role with the Chronicle. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate you guys having me. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is a former All-Big 12 running back, the 2011 Valero Alamo Bowl Offensive MVP, and a guy that rushed for more than 2,000 yards in 28 touchdowns in his Baylor career. Terrence Ganaway, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's, it's fun. You know, it's kind of mind-boggling to hear some of those statistics and see what some of our running backs are doing now, but uh obviously in, enjoyed my great career at Baylor and, and looking forward to, to being on with you guys. Well, we definitely appreciate you joining us, and uh, we'll dive into the running backs here in just a moment. But, uh, you know, kind of looking at Baylor this season, uh, they've started 6-0 and this year, which is the, you know, they've done it each of the last four years, a program first, only FBS program to do so. And, you know, although they've been inconsistent at times on both sides of the ball, they've found a way to win each game. If you're assessing the first half of the Baylor season, how would you grade them out? You know, I think uh, a B plus, uh, a solid B plus. I think this is a very talented team, offensively and defensively. Uh, but it doesn't seem like Baylor's playing very focused football right now, which gives me caution going into the back half of the season because it's a little bit more meaty than uh, the front uh, front uh, half of the season. Uh, got some great wins. I think we had a lot of learning opportunities. You know, going up to you know, Iowa State and, and being down late in the game and being able to fight through that. So I think that's going to help us 
but at the end of the day, we don't look very sharp tackling. We don't look sharp, you know, covering uh, in, in some cases. Uh, we don't look sharp blocking up front uh, sometimes and running the ball, passing and catching. You know, I know we put a lot of pressure on Seth to stay healthy and be who he needs to be, but I don't think Seth has been himself um, this season, and, and I definitely don't think the receivers have done him much favors in catching some of those difficult balls. So a lot of drops, and I think, you know, the only way you, you can kind of get past that if you if you practice well and then you up the intensity. And I think, uh, you know, going to play Texas, the, the, the level of detail and the level of focus is going to be a lot higher than what it had been in the prior six games. Kind of diving into the Texas game, uh, you know, last year it was a, a difficult scenario for the Bears not having a, really a quarterback uh, to play the game, and Baylor nearly pulled that game out. Uh, but this year they go into a hostile environment in Austin. Uh, the Longhorns have a better offense this year, but they seem to be struggling defensively. Uh, it seems to me that there's almost a lot of animosity, at least from a fan base, between both Texas and Baylor now. Uh, how do you think the Bears coming off of a bye week respond to going into DKR Stadium? It's all about how you prepare. I mean, this week is a good week to digest, get everyone's motor, um, you know, idle back a little bit. You know, you're still focusing, a lot of mental preparation. Um, usually when when I played ball, uh, on our bye weeks, we did a lot of self-adjusting, you know, figuring out what we've done wrong, what we what we can fix. So it, it technically isn't two weeks for a team to prepare for, for at least the team side of things. Then the coaches are breaking down Texas film all year long. But from the team side of things, we're wondering, how can we make our power better? How can we make our, you know, our defense better? How can we align and, and, and sharpen some of the technique, um, the technique aspect of the game to go in and have a good next week preparing for Texas and doing the Texas install, figuring out how that looks like. Um, so, it gives us the opportunity to stay fresh mentally and physically and then learn how to play the game and, and uh, I guess, tweak our game technically to get ready for uh, for Texas. But next week is going to be a huge install. This is what Texas do. I'm sure they've shown the guys but not really preached it. Uh, sure they're um, just out there just trying to make sure people are feeling good and confident with what we do well. And then next week we'll spend a lot of time figuring out what Texas will do against us um, and, and figuring out, uh, because this is a big weekend for Texas as well. And, I mean, that's just going to give us another week of, uh, of film to really analyze what we can take advantage of offensively and defensively against Texas. Now, Terrence, speaking of, uh, you know, kind of the rest of the season here and, and how uh, Seth has had trouble completing with receivers, um, how vital do you think that veteran Shocklin would and uh you know, second running back Terrence Williams will be in helping Baylor kind of close out the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I think he'll be very vital. For one, the last half of the season, we're going to have to keep their, their offense off the field. I mean, you look at what Kansas State can do on the ground. You look at what West Virginia is doing defensively and keeping offenses off the field and not scoring. Um, and um, you look at what Texas can do on the ground, Oklahoma, TCU, I don't know. Texas Tech, I don't know. They just are high octane offenses that are, are sputtering along right now. But if we want to go undefeated, if we want to replicate the 6 0 uh, front half of the schedule, we have to be able to dominate the line of scrimmage offensively and we have to be able to run the ball. 
if we go into games and we're just throwing the ball around, we're going to put too much pressure on our defense to go win at Texas, to go win at West Virginia, uh, to go win at Oklahoma with our defense. Not saying they cannot do it, but they're just unneeded pressure and unwanted um, uh, in, in a bad situation for us because it's ideal for those teams to host us versus them coming to our place. Uh, and we're going to have to control the game with the running uh, running back. You know, Shock Linwood, obviously one of the best, if not the best, running back in Baylor history. Obviously, statistic-wise, he is definitely there at the top. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Terrence Williams with his you know, very mean and angry demeanor and the way he runs the ball is going to help help keep the ball out. Seth Russell's hand is going to probably take bigger shots in the last half of the season and then make it a little bit easier for our receivers just to go out there and play a receiver and catch balls open um, right in the middle of the field with some good play-action fakes if our running game is doing what we needed to do. Uh, and for and what our running game can do for our defense is keep them off the field and keep them extremely fresh. If we go to Austin and our defense is on the field for 35 minutes, I'm going to tell you right now that University of Texas is going to run the ball in the fourth quarter, and we're not going to have too many answers. I know we've played a almost perfect fourth quarter the entire year, but it doesn't mean anything to the next six games. I mean, statistics are, are, are great for telling you, showing you a picture today, but I'm telling you, Oklahoma and Texas, TCU, they're going to put the ball on the ground, and they're going to try to run the ball to keep our offense off the field and the best way to do that is run the ball, and we got to stop the run, and we got to be able to run the next six games. And if we do that well, I'm, feel, I'm fully confident that we can go into Morgantown undefeated, 11-0, and and have a shot at going to the Big 12, winning the Big 12 championship and going into the college football playoffs. Gosh, how sweet would that be heading into the uh, you know the final week of the season? But you know, kind of more on that offense and the play calling specifically. Uh, you know, Shock's averaging six and a half yards a carry. Terrence averaging five point six yards. Jermichael Hasey is having a heck of a freshman year, six point six yards a carry. But overall, it seems like the offensive line has been able to sort of gel the last few weeks. I mean, e- even though the team struggled against Iowa State, uh, Shock was still able to do his thing on the ground. Uh, Kansas, they were able to do their thing. When you're looking specifically at offensive play calling for this version of the Bears in 2016. How different has it been with Art Bryles not at the helm at head coach and Kendall calling all the plays? Have you seen a, a difference in the offense this season? Or to you, does it look from an outsider perspective that things are going just as normal and we have yet to see the full extent of the playbook? You know, I think we've seen the full extent of the playbook. I don't think Baylor's ever tried to hide anything. I mean, first of all, you don't ever want to go in the, the media schedule not having practice live game reps of, of plays. I'm sure there's some trickery out there for sure uh, that we haven't shown. But as far as the meat of our our the, the meat and potatoes of our play calling, I mean, we've seen that. We just got to get a little bit better at executing those. And Kendall Browse has called plays for a while. I mean, he's no newbie to the the whole scheme of the uh, of the game and stuff like that. And those offensive coaches have been together for a while, so they know they have a good camaraderie um, and good partnership and teamwork. So I feel fully confident that we're we're running um, as efficiently uh, as efficiently as possible. The thing I, I I have concern with is just that we don't look very focused. And I know there's a lot of stuff every week. There's something that comes out about someone said this and. 
you know, obviously Coach Brown's not there to help, you know, keep some of those distractions uh, at arm's length. And so I just think that has affected the team. Um, but, you know, I, I think that Kendall has called a great season. Obviously, we're 6-0. and And that's why I give it a B-plus because of the coaching has stayed the same. It's just the players are, you know, they, you know, Coach Browse recruited these guys and their their integrity is in question as well because they're still on the football team. No one's really spoken up for them or took up for them. Uh, and so it just makes puts them in a difficult position. And at the end of the day, they just want to go out there and play football because that's what they are. Um, I'm interested to see how we respond going down to Austin, which, most of us feel like Austin kind of stirred up a lot of this problem. And, you know, quite frankly, Austin is being investigated for tampering with recruiting uh, right now. So mm-hmm. a lot of emotions going down to Austin. Austin, Texas has never been a rivalry for Baylor until Baylor became relevant in the Big 12. So this newfound rivalry, rivalry this newfound hate, is something that we should very uh, watch very closely and see how we can respond to it. But it's going to be a hostile environment. And Texas, if they don't win any game this year, they want to beat Baylor. It used to be if they didn't win any game, they want to beat Oklahoma. But uh, Oklahoma is like, listen, I'm just trying to win the Big 12. And Texas is like, we got to beat Baylor every year now because Baylor is the stepchild that uh, has gotten a seat at the table and they don't like that. So got to figure out how we can go down there and play a sharp, very focused, high-intensity game, and, and really stick it to Texas. Terrence, uh, in looking at how the team has sort of responded to everything going on off the field and, um, you know, having uh, Jim Grobe jump into a difficult situation, we had him on here a couple weeks ago to kind of talk about uh, the job that has been presented in front of him. How do you think that he's taken the helm there uh, at Baylor, and how do you think he's done so far as a coach? I think he's done great. You know, he, he didn't put this team together. He didn't go into these homes and recruit these players and meet their parents. So as as, as far as, you know, coming in being a new guy trying to save face, I think he's done uh, a, a great job at representing who Baylor really is. Um, and I think his integrity has been questioned with some of the, uh, the issues that happened this summer. He came out and said, hey, basically he's saying, you know, hey, I don't have any skin in the game, but, you know, I want to come down here and help this program out. I felt like it was a great opportunity to uh, to 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 come down and and save Baylor and, and get this this ship headed in the right direction. And I I think he's been great. I mean, he doesn't have he has authority. So you know, let's preface that he doesn't have the authority like to go on the sideline and say, "Hey, let's get Rura right before a series." I'm sure he's there. You know, making sure everything's going well, you know, talking and encouraging and motivating players. But, you know, at the end of the day, Coach KB uh, runs the offense uh, and his staff, and then uh, Coach Bennett runs the defense. So it it puts him in a, a, a you know, hard spot there, but I think he's handled it with extreme per, uh, professionalism, which really makes Baylor uh, – really gives Baylor the, the – opportunity to go 6-0 and right now. I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like if, you know, some of our assistant coaches are having to answer some of those hard questions that Coach Jim Groban have have to answer. And, you know, he said, hey, this is a good group of guys here, and we're going to continue to play football, and we're going to teach these guys how to be men, which is no problem because I played on the team with some of these guys, and 
I know the type of leadership that our coaches, uh, you know, bring down from the, the top-down level. So I love Coach Grove. I haven't met him. I, I had an opportunity to interact with uh, Mac Rose, but I think Baylor's going in the right direction. I just think uh, from the administration side across the street, uh, we need to do some things to be a little bit more transparent to our student body and our alumni. I completely agree with that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that you you mentioned Mac Rhodes, and he's going to have a, a you know a very important decision coming up here in a few weeks as he uh, officially starts looking for a new head coach for the Bears in the 2017 season. It, you know, as someone that played for Baylor, someone that has a, a you know a, a strong love and care for the university. When you're looking for the next head football coach for Baylor University, what type of uh, man and what type of character and what type of leader as a head coach would you be looking for? You know, if we can't get Coach Browse back, let's let's get rid of the offense. I mean, uh, our, our coach our Coach Kendall is not staying. Let's let's not try to duplicate anything because if we get some coach in that's ran Browse's offense, we're going to have too much. It's the, the expectation is going to be unrealistic. Hey, we're running the exact same offense. Why can't we go six and zero and undefeated? Blah blah blah. It's different. Coaches are different. They have different nuances to their play calling. So it's it's totally different. We just can't do that. Um, and so I would like a younger guy, a little bit more personable, that we can go out and recruit. You know, I like Les Miles. Les, Les Miles actually because I think he puts a ton of emphasis on uh, defense and special teams. Which if you have a defense and special teams in the Big Twelve then I think you can win the uh, championship. And that's exactly how West Virginia is winning right now. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of names getting tossed around. I don't think we're even in the market for Tom Herman. I think at the end of the year, there's going to be too many big schools that's going to be jockeying for him, uh, depending on where he wants to land. But um, I think we're just not going to have enough cash to get him in here, at least initially. I think we go after a smaller coach who can build his own program like Coach Browse did once he got to Baylor. Uh, P.J. Fleck out in uh, Michigan will be a, a great candidate. Uh, and, you know, Larry Fedora, uh, I, I think this East Texas, East Texas Baptist University over in Marshall, they have a really good offensive coordinator. Maybe he's the up-and-coming genius that we can, you know, partner up with Les Miles and go out there and re- recruit East Texas, which is deep and uh, uh, skill athletes, and then you can go, go down into the Houston area as well. Um, I, I don't know. That's a hard decision, and I haven't really looked over these coaches' resumes and vetted them. I see what they're doing successfully on the field, but obviously we got to bring in a character guy that really represents the values of Baylor. Uh, and then from an administrative standpoint, we got to make sure our administration is, is kicking all on, uh, on the same uh, page because – if I'm a coach and I'm a highly sought-out coach, why would I come to Baylor if we can't get our administration and our athletic department on the same page? Right. And if until until we be we are able to, you know, up the ante with you know having a great administration and great coaching staff, um, I think it's difficult to go out there and get one of those high-name coaches like Les Miles and Tom Herman. Yeah, Terrence, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, speaking of administrative issues, uh, of course, you know, Big 12 expansion was talked about a lot in the media here uh, really over the past few months. And 
uh, it was kind of all started by David Boren there at OU, kind of talking about how the, the Big 12 was psychologically disadvantaged with 10 members. Well, you know, fast forward to now, and uh, they've decided not to expand the conference. Let me ask you, do you think this was a wise decision? Do you think that this was good for the conference? And um, going into the future, what do you think uh, the Big 12 should do in terms of its conference membership? I think we should expand four more teams. I think there should be 14 teams in the Big 12. Uh, I like Houston. I understand why not Houston because of the geographical location of, like, the recruits. If Houston goes power five and they get a good coach, man, they're competing against everyone in the country now because it's easy to keep a guy home when you say your mom can go to the after party uh, once we knock off number (laughs) one Texas. Uh, And then you think about BYU, Cincinnati, and Memphis. You go to those regions and you can get four teams, uh, maybe even UCF or maybe even Connecticut. You grow the geographic market and media market and presence of the Big 12. We dip into some of those other markets, the Big Ten market, the SEC market, ACC market, and get revenue driven. But I I think until we split the division and say, hey, there's going to be a clear-cut championship game on championship weekend, it puts the Big 12 as a, at a disadvantage, especially when you have two 11-1 teams trying to get into the uh, postseason. Especially when Alabama and LSU 11-1, they play for a championship game. Outright, someone's going to go 12-1, and and they could be submitted to a championship game. Same with the Big 10 and all the other conferences, Pac-12. If you can submit a true champion, it makes it easier for the decision makers on the the board um, uh, to make that decision. Now I get it. If Oklahoma and Texas are doing that and they're eleven and one, it's easier for them to come in because they're alumni based in the the uh, the, the story programs that they can bring to the, the the college football playoffs. But it hurts the teams like West Virginia and Baylor, especially if we're both eleven and one going into championship weekend without playing a championship game. It's kind of ironic that uh, your senior year at Baylor, there was a lot of expansion talk, uh, you know, with West Virginia and TCU coming into the league, that Nebraska, Texas A&M, Colorado, uh, Missouri, all heading out of the league. But, you know, kind of diving into your career really quickly, uh, you know, the first few years that you were on Baylor's campus, uh, you didn't have that many starts. Uh, You had just two starts heading into your senior year, but then your last year, you had over 1,500 yards rushing, 21 touchdowns, and it, you know overall it was just a remarkable season with an upset over top five Oklahoma, a Heisman Trophy for RG3, and you know the program's first bowl win in more than a decade. How special was your senior season for you? And kind of overall, if you're looking at your career, how would you rate your Baylor experience? You know, I think it was great. Um, obviously, you know, Coach Browser went out to winners. You know, he went into these small schools like Pittsburgh and. Um, you know, Mount Pleasant, DeKalb, Liberty Alo, LK, and those are just the small schools uh, back home where I'm from. And he gave guys a chance, but he really looked at what we could do. And all of us love winning, and um, and we came out there, and and now you got guys like Shark, Davion Hall, and um, uh, Katie Cannon from those small towns that are are making big splashes. Uh, at Baylor and in the Big 12, the big reason for success in 2011 and since then is that we had a bunch of guys that believed that we could be relevant. And no matter what jersey we put on or or who we face, 
that we can go out there and play with anybody. And I think just having a great O-line, offensive linemen, are always the key to you know being able to have a great season uh, on a run as a running back, and then having a great team like you know Kendall and Terrence Williams, Lanier, uh, Tevin Reese, Levi Noah. You know, a lot of those guys that were able to stretch the field and give me a lot of running room up the middle um, really helped. And then, obviously, having Glasgow Martin and, and Jerry Salubi as a running back to give the, the defenses different looks. Obviously, when Roberts at, in the backfield, I mean, it kind of keeps some of the reads, uh, uh, delay some of those read keys, and, and I took full advantage of that. So, a great team. Uh, you know, a lot of those accolades are personal, but – personal personal but that is a team effort you know i know robert won that husband but he'll go on the record and say that you know we won that as a team those are championships and those are milestones and memories that it took you know the the whole squad the the team the coaches to really completely buy into what we could actually do at baylor um and make it special and that's why you know you see the success we're still having is because people have came to Baylor and be like, listen, Baylor is another team that just trying to win a national championship. And that wasn't a mindset when I stepped on campus in 2009. Yeah, it was kind of nice to see, you know, you cap off your career the way that you did with that remarkable win over Washington in the Alamo Bowl. I remember sitting there in the stands and just uh, it, it was a great feeling to be a Baylor fan. We were all uh, proud of the accomplishments that you and the team had that season and, uh, you know, that the you know the Baylor has been able to carry that tradition on but Terrence we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and joining us this week on the weekly brew podcast and you're pretty active on social media and also pretty heavily involved with Sikkim365.com for those that are interested in kind of learning more about you or following your work on Sikkim365 or you know following you on social media what is the best way for them to get in touch with you uh Twitter I'm always on Twitter uh that's a great way to Get me to see see what you're up to, and, and I can interact with you. Uh, and that's at Terrence Ganaway um, on Twitter. So I'm on Sikkim365. We got a great great crew there. Uh, latest and greatest information, and and it's and we really built a community. And what we're trying to do there is we we really want to uh, get a a weekend or a week where we can all take a vacation somewhere and rent out this entire complex and just be with Baylor people just so Baylor can get to know each other. I know football is kind of like a community, the only sport really where you can go and do some massive tailgating to get to know some people. But we're really trying to push that where we can do that with some um, basketball games or some spring events to help um, encourage some of those other sports that are doing well at Baylor University. But, um Listen, guys, thank you for having me, um, Jeremy, Austin. It's been a pleasure. Great question, great time. Looking forward to this week off and then going down to Austin and hopefully um, beating them 56-0 to zero and they fire everyone, <laughs> and, and including the, the fat lady that sings after the game. So, um, I mean, we're, Baylor's doing good right now. We got, we got a tough road, tough stretch here in the, late, uh, the last six games. But if anybody can, can go out there and, and rise above all the distractions, it's uh, my beloved university, Beverly University, and this football team. 
Well, Terrence, we definitely appreciate it. Make sure to follow him on social media. Just search Terrence Ganaway and also check out his work at Sikkim365.com. They do great work there, great message boards. Uh, anything that you could want as a Baylor fan, they put it out there. So, Terrence, uh, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll see you at McLean Stadium. Yes, sir. Thank you again. Y'all have a good one. Sikkim. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew podcast is old friend of the show, Troy Rank, formerly of the Denver Post, now uh, the Broncos, Broncos rather insider and sportscaster for uh, Denver 7 News, which is ABC in Denver there. First of all, uh, it seems like a lot of people are leaving the Post, Troy. Is there a reason for that? And also, how are you enjoying the new digs? Well, it's a difficult time in the newspaper industry. It's not a surprise to anyone. I was not unhappy at the Post. If I had known I was going to leave for TV, I would have taken the buyout. Uh, so I'm not that smart. But it just, this presented an opportunity for me to do something I've always kind of dabbled in in TV. And they came after me so aggressively that I said, you know, if I'm ever going to try it, uh, now's the time. And it's been wonderful uh, to have autonomy and do things I've never done. Um, be on TV is a bit of an adrenaline rush. And this spring after Broncos season, I'll have a chance to do uh, some sports casting. So I have no complaints. I wish my colleagues at the Post nothing but the best. It's a difficult environment because they've cut to the bone and they're just asking so much of good people to continue to do more and more. So I wish them nothing but the best. But for me, it was just time. And now you don't have to write 10-inch columns on long snappers, right? Yeah, I, I enjoyed my column on Aaron Brewer, uh, and then he got cut right after the <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> so it was a good thing I wrote about him before he got uh, lost. I, the part about the newspaper industry is hard, and, and it's been out even this week. They haven't figured out, you know, the digital first strategy because they still want everything print, 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 and then online. And you're serving two beasts at the same time with one department and one writer, and it just it makes it difficult to do quality work. It just feels like you're constantly churning out copy. And that's not why many of us got into the business, you know, where you just regurgitate, regurgitate. You like to write. I mean, I love writing. That's why I did, got into this. So, you know, I wish him nothing but the best. Um, I have good friends there. I just, for me, this was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Absolutely. You know, we have the same issues with the Chronicle. I love working for the Chronicle, but it is an industry-wide problem and probably something that uh, merits a longer discussion on another podcast sometime. But so you got the Broncos facing the Texans this week, and we're able to catch you ahead of the game, which is unusual for us because we usually release Sunday nights, Monday mornings. So we're, we're glad to get a chance to talk about the game with you. Uh, first of all, uh, just who do you like? you got two 4-2 and two teams, uh, I think probably different perceptions about where they are in terms of talent and, and ability. Uh, who do you like in this matchup, and what do you think are sort of the keys to the game coming up? Well, because Denver's at home, and they've already lost one home game. They typically don't lose more than two in a season. Uh, so I like them because they're home. Uh, their defense has now been challenged and kind of backed into a corner, which when this team's at its best, their people are doubting them, and I think they're no longer comfortable. The issue, what are the keys to the game? The, the defense has to get off to a better start. Now, the defense isn't the reason they're four and two. The problem is the defense has given up 31 points on first possessions. The team has been outscored 41-13 to 13 in the first quarter. And you say, oh, big deal, so they give up a touchdown on the first possession. Well, when your offense is struggling, now they're climbing uphill against a team that's suddenly starting to feel itself and saying, hey, we've got the Super Bowl champs on the ropes, 7 nothing, and 10 nothing At San Diego, the Chargers ran 30 plays to the Broncos' first five plays. And, again, that's just not a recipe for the Broncos' success. So the keys are Broncos get off to a fast start defensively and Denver get back to establishing the run game uh, that they haven't really had since half, probably halftime of game three. 
So you talk about that. You, you mentioned on the uh, the Rank and File podcast, which which I enjoy, by the way. I certainly recommend that if you have any interest in Broncos uh, football or in Denver sports, you listen to Rank and File. But you talked about them having the worst uh, worst in football on first drives there, which I, I don't have any confidence in the Texans' offense. Let's say the Texans get the ball first. You think Texans are going to be able to score there? Again, what's happened is these 15-play scripts have really hurt Denver. The teams have attacked them in a way that's a little unique this year. They've kind of neutralized the Broncos' strength, which is their no-fly zone and their outside linebackers getting to the passer, including Von Miller. So the quarterback gets rid of the ball quickly to a running back guarded by a linebacker or a tight end being guarded by a linebacker. And because of that... That is kind of the mismatch that's been exploited. Uh, you know, and, and you've got good tight ends in Houston. And Brock knows certainly how to use them. I thought Brock looked great in up-tempo. When he's been in the Texans' regular base offense this year, he looks incredibly uncomfortable to me. You know, I'm not out there every day. I just When he gets up-tempo, I like what I've seen. But do I think they could score? I think this is the week that stops. You know, the Broncos got a pick six on Jameis Winston in Tampa Bay. That was their last good game. You know, I'm not saying Brock's going to throw a pick six first possession. Not a pick six, but they set him up at like a two-yard line and Denver scored the next play. But Denver is bent on changing this reputation that they're just taking punches to the face to begin a game. And again, in most offenses could weather this. Their offense, at the same time their defense is taking these punches early, the offense has hit the skids because they're not running the football. One of the big storylines, there's a couple of big storylines. We'll get to, uh, to all of them. But, but you know, obviously Osweiler coming from uh, Denver to Houston, uh, you guys offered him well, whatever it was. I think it was $16 million a year. We offered him 18 uh, In some ways, given his performance this season, do you feel like the Broncos dodged a bullet maybe in letting Osweiler go? Yeah, I'm not going to be critical of Brock the person. He was professional. I like dealing with him. I, I root for guys to get paid and do well. My my issue with Brock was, and this is my baseball background, just because you pay a pitcher ace money doesn't make him an ace. And for me, he was a third, fourth starter. And so do you want to pay that guy $18 million and just because he's making $18 million, he's suddenly going to be better? For me, he's a you know, middle-of-the-road kind of ordinary quarterback, not bad, not good, on the right fit. He, you know, he can win games for you. But I understood why they got to a point at four years, $64 million, and they were uncomfortable. I had multiple sources in the organization tell me, this was months ago, say that they were glad he didn't accept their offer, and they were too late by then. But you get the point that they were uncomfortable. They had wanted Brock back you know, long ago, you know, 10, 12 million, not 18. They were not in that market. And this will be the perfect decision if Trevor Simeon and or Paxton Lynch become the everyday guy. And that guy, you know, and Lynch, in their case, they got him for four-year, $9.5 million with a fifth-year option. Brock's four-year, 72. So you do the math. If Paxton Lynch turns out to be a franchise quarterback, it's a great decision that allows them to fill in other spots in their roster. The other thing about not paying Brock, there's no way they would have been able to pay Von Miller, Emmanuel Sanders, and Brandon Marshall. They were going to pay Von, I'm pretty convinced, because he is their guy. But maybe they lose another big-name guy. And that's, again, they made decisions that way. Like, if we pay Brock, who's going out the door, the other side? So I think Denver did the right thing here. Uh, I think the play of Brock so far is sort of confirming that, that he's not a bad player, but he's just kind of – he's just a guy. He's no better than what they've got right now, and what they're playing right now is way less than what the Texans are paying. 
it's all money ball at this point. You allude to Lynch and Simeon, and, and you know, obviously Simeon's starting ahead of Lynch, but I think there's a sense uh, in some corners that Lynch may be the long-term solution there. How, how's that quarterback battle working out? Are, are fans satisfied with what you guys are getting from Simeon, and do you think we're going to see Lynch uh, eventually step up and take over? Well, they were happy with Simeon when they were 4-0, and he played unbelievably well at Cincinnati <laughs> on the road and had this great game, and and he was at the at that time he's the highest ranked quarterback in the fourth quarter then he goes to Tampa Bay and he gets hurt and he was largely ineffective prior to getting hurt uh and Lynch came in and played well at Tampa and partly not unlike Brock where he was in up tempo a little bit and moving around and he looked good but then he starts against Atlanta meaning Lynch and they were all over him and he was seeing ghosts he was he did everything you would expect out of a rookie quarterback in his first start he held on to the ball too long he tried to make throws that weren't there when he showed his athleticism, you were like, okay, you see the future, but it's just not all, it's not ready yet. He clearly that game said, you know what, he needs some more seasoning. Now, if Trevor goes out and plays again like he did at San Diego, which wasn't entirely his fault, he's not healthy with this left shoulder. And he, the idea was never to have him throw 50 times coming off of an injury, even if it's his non throwing arm. But if Trevor goes out and they lose to the Texans and he doesn't play well, the call, siren call for Lynch will grow louder. Right now, it, people are giving it a benefit of the doubt. Kubiak wasn't there for the San Diego game. That clearly affected play calling. But if they go out and lay an egg in another home game, yeah, you'll hear the siren call f- from Denver to Houston to get Lynch in there. <laughs> so Kubiak's an interesting guy because I think sort of uh, a lot of fans were happy to see him go here, and then he winds up there and becomes a Super Bowl winner. And I still hear people complaining about that all the time. What, what, what's the sense around Denver of, of how, how good has he been for you guys and how satisfied is the town with what he's been able to contribute and, and how much does he contribute? Well, remember, he's seen by many as a Bronco. He played here. He coached was the offensive coordinator with Elway when they won two Super Bowls with Coach Mike Shanahan, and now he's come back to restore the glory. And in his first year, ahead of expectations, they won a Super Bowl. So it really, at this point, I don't know what else. It doesn't matter what else he accomplished. He'll always be viewed favorably by this fan base because he brought him back a Super Bowl, which they've been chasing since Elway. So in that way, his legacy is secure. He can only embellish it at this point uh, and add to it if they were to somehow get another Super Bowl. Uh, He's great with the media. He's transparent. He's a high-character guy. Uh, In terms of our profession, he's a joy to deal with because he is so transparent about injuries and you're not playing mind games. He just tells you what it is, and he's the ultimate professional to deal with in that regard as an NFL coach. Uh, and, you know, as far as I can tell, the Houston thing, you know, it soured. You know, if Matt Schaub doesn't get hurt, maybe he goes to a Super Bowl in Houston. He desperately wanted to bring a Super Bowl title to Houston, his hometown. That He was driven to do that. It just didn't work out. But he did take satisfaction, and a lot of those guys on that staff won a Super Bowl with him last year. Lifers in the game, including Wade Phillips. So, you know, he still speaks fondly of Houston, Gary Kubiak, but Denver in so many ways is his home as well because his kids, you know, a couple of his kids went to high school here. He raised part of his family here, and he spent a huge chunk of his life here prior to coming back. So looking at this game coming up, you mentioned Brandon Marshall a minute ago, Broncos, Broncos linebacker, and he had some interesting quotes that are making news. I think these things always make news whether they are or not, but he kind of mirrored your statement. You know, He said, I think everybody's happy when you're a player in this league. You're happy when another player gets his money, when he gets what's due him. But he also said at the same time, it's competition. We want to shut him down just because it's Brock. We know Brock. He came from here, and we just want to kill him. That's what we do. Now, personally, I don't make much of that, although it has been in the headlines and in the news. Uh, do, do you think there's something extra in this game because it's Brock Osweiler coming back and they're playing him? 
No, and I, I you know, I, I'll defend Brandon Marshall here because I was standing there and he was talking to me for a good chunk of that interview uh, that's being spread. Uh, you know, it's gone kind of gone viral. He was saying it like you would say to your little brother in the outside playing basketball, I want to kill you today. You know, I want to me. And he literally used the words, we want to crush him. We want to kill him. Obviously, given his social stand right now and using that verb, I think if he had to do it over again, he wouldn't use it. But he did not mean it in any way other than the context of sports that we want to crush the guy. He's like your big brother, little brother. You want to beat him. And it is a little personal. That's the total context of it as someone who was standing there when he gave that that interview um is there a little more yeah there's the only issue they took with brock was that when the season ended guys couldn't reach him on the phone he went into a spider cave by design so every message came through his agent and that's how guys do it i covered scott boris clients for years they they basically say one voice if you want the most money you let me talk you don't talk to the media you don't talk to friends I and that when you streamline it, you end up with the most money because you have one person negotiating for you. But you do end up with kind of a wake of hurt feelings from teammates who are like, hey, man, you're, you're my guy. And all of a sudden you, you can't even get him to return a text. That was the only issue was the way it went down. But I totally understood from Brock's perspective that if you want the top dollar, that's how you do it. But it does leave some hard feelings. And they want to be because he's like one of their former guys. Like we want to show you. We want to show you in practice last year every chance we had to hit you and coach wouldn't let us. Well, that, that's not going to happen now. And that's kind of just part of it. It's just healthy for me, healthy competition, like big brother, little brother. I want to show you who's boss. That, the Brandon Marshall quote, the fact that it's being used that way, it, I can't say I'm surprised, but it's being used that way by people who weren't standing there in that interview. I can tell you that. Well, I appreciate you clearing that up. That was my impression reading it was it's not a story so much as it is just – it is bulletin board material. I certainly enjoy that sort of thing. It kind of perks me up and gets me excited for the games, but it didn't seem sinister in the way that a lot of people are pointing out. And politics just plays uh, a big role sometimes in the way people perceive these statements and so forth. Well, I know you're uh, you're on a time budget here, so I'm going to let you go. But before uh, we go, what what are the Texans – adult just here in Houston – what do the Texans need to do in order to be successful against the Broncos here on Monday? Well, start fast. Uh, the, the blueprint has been pretty simple to beat the Broncos – Start fast, make, uh, put them on their heels a little bit, use your tight ends and running backs in the passing game. Lamar Miller was their best player the other night. I mean, he had a fantastic game, and he's going to be a handful for the Broncos. But start fast, rely on your running backs and tight ends. I, and I know Hopkins is terrific, but the no-fly zone can take any guy out. They took Julio Jones out. They took A.J. Green out. They can neutralize a receiver. So if, if the, for the Texans to win, they'd have to start fast, use their running backs, tight ends, and make the Broncos one-dimensional offensively. I mean, it's not a secret that when Denver can't run, they're in a difficult spot. And if you can't do that and you get into down a distance against the Broncos, you know, Brock is going to start seeing ghosts and hearing footsteps because <laughs> they're going to be coming for him. Well, it is always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, if there's anybody that's interested in Denver sports, we certainly recommend they follow you. Tell them how they can find you on social media, Troy. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at, at Troy Rink, T-R-O-Y-R-E-N-C-K. I'm on Facebook, uh, same way. Uh, and again, as you promoted, I appreciate my Rink and File podcast that shows up on Bleacher Report once or twice a week. So, yeah, I, well, I, I answer most questions and emails on Twitter and in my email. Uh, I love Twitter as for insight. And I love, but you know, like anyone, there's probably a there's a, a high water mark for it as well. But yeah, I, I welcome it. My, my readers are some of my best resources, and readers and uh, viewers. So I appreciate uh, insight from you all. And thanks again for this opportunity to be on your podcast. Absolutely, man. Well, congratulations again on the new gig, and uh, we we certainly appreciate you taking the time.
Sounds good. Take care, man. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Ginny Dow Creech, Terrence Ganaway, and Troy Ring for joining us on this week's show. And uh, Jeremy, I'm going to start off with you. Baylor has a huge game this week against Texas inside the top 10, looking to move to a, uh, a perfect 7-0 on the season. Uh, it was great, I thought, talking to Terrence, who had some great insight on the Bears this season. I was a personal fan of his uh, during kind of the RG3 era uh, when he was running back for Baylor. Um, really, really key insights for for Baylor heading into next week. A real vital game. You know, Texas uh, might be down. Charlie Strong might be on the hot seat. You know, arguably he's he might be done at, at Texas. But that doesn't mean that Texas isn't still a dangerous team. And as history has shown, when Baylor falls asleep at the wheel and uh, underestimating their opponents, they oftentimes uh, lose, especially heading into uh, an away game. So really key insights from, from Terrence. And I want to just thank him for coming on. Um, really exciting uh, season for the, the Bears now that uh, really it's just Baylor and West Virginia that remain unbeaten in, uh, in the Big 12. Of course, you have OU, which is kind of the the boogeyman in the corner, but uh, only time will tell. And, and it would be really exciting, I think, to see an unbeaten Baylor and unbeaten West Virginia playing here uh, for the Big 12 title here in uh, Morgantown. Yeah, it should be a fun week. Uh, a lot of upsets in college football this weekend, and we'll get to that in just a second. But, uh, Kevin, I thought you had a phenomenal interview with Troy Rink, and uh, it's kind of a unique situation that we actually get to preview the Texans game because we are releasing this episode on Sunday night, and the Texans play Monday night. Yeah, and he had some interesting insight into just kind of the newspaper business because he's one of those guys that I think had good experiences working for the Denver Post. There's been sort of uh, just a mass exodus of theirs. They've had buyouts and people going to do other stuff. And so, uh, you know, working in the newspaper industry myself, I know a lot of our listeners do as well. It's just interesting to hear about um, the evolution of that that uh, whole field and the whole digital first thing and how we just really don't have a handle on it yet. And I have some personal experience with that too. So, yeah, great insight into the game, also into just the, the career path that I've chosen for myself. And I appreciate uh, him kind of weighing in on that. But uh, Troy Rank, always great for a number of sound bites and some great analysis. And we uh, we enjoy him. And we hope you do as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jenny Dowell-Creech, of course, brought it. She uh, spoke everything on the city of Houston, including uh, throwback to the Comets and also where you can find the best margaritas in town. So thanks to Jenny. And she was actually at the uh, A&M Alabama game this past week. And Alabama destroyed Texas A&M. The, the spread on that game was 17 and a half. Uh, Alabama actually winning by 19, and that kind of brings us to our uh, crazy week of college football. And before we dive into that, uh, most of you know that we have a uh, pick'em contest going on, and uh, this week I would call it Separation Saturday. Both myself and Kevin scored three points, while Jeremy only scored one. So that puts Kevin and I at the top, tied at 21 apiece, with Jeremy sitting in last place at 18. And uh, just for clarity, the games that we picked this week were Texas at K-State, TCU at West Virginia, Texas A&M at Alabama, U of H at SMU, Oklahoma at Texas Tech. And that last game, Oklahoma at Texas Tech, was a barn burner. Uh, I believe more than 100 points scored in that game. Uh, Patrick Mahomes had more than 700 yards passing, just an absurd number. Uh, but the game that kind of sticks out to me were two. Last night, Penn State knocking off Ohio State, and of course, U of H going to SMU and losing. Uh, guys, I'm curious, what was the big uh, reaction from last night's games? Well, obviously, being a U of H alum and, and kind of being, I wouldn't say obsessed with them, but but following pretty closely, uh, I was <laughs> I was majorly disappointed. I mean, I thought the Navy loss was bad, but that's just. Um 
it's tough. I was at a game, so I couldn't watch it personally, but just following along on Twitter, people were saying things like they look like they just don't care. And that's not the U of H that I know. That's not the Tom Herman teams that I know. And some of that, you know, basically what Florida State said last year is we weren't really invested in this game. This is not where we wanted to be. And so we uh, we kind of didn't play our best or whatever. And U of H fans got onto them for that. Well, now I'm hearing a lot of the same stuff about U of H. So it is, it is quite a fall from grace that I, I'm experiencing along with the team here. I sort of put myself vicariously in their position. I wouldn't say that I'm over it. I'm still kind of in trauma and shock. Uh, definitely don't know how to deal with this. So I'm just kind of burying myself in my work. But I think it's going to hit me here in a little bit, and uh, it's going to be a tough day. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, that 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 loss to SMU is big, uh, of course, for Houston, you know, because they were, uh, you know, slated at the beginning of the season to maybe even make the playoff. But, uh, you know, SMU having incurred the death penalty in the late 80s, huge win for the program and for Chad Morris, especially, um, you know, it's, it's hard as an SMU football fan uh, to get excited about anything because, you know, their record is just pretty dismal every year. But Really huge win for them, and really they played consistently well throughout the entire game. I knew that when Baylor played SMU and we were tied up at like halftime, I was like, what is going on? But what I realize now is that this is a different SMU team, and I think that uh, if they get, you know take the momentum from this game heading into the rest of the season, they might make a bowl game, which would be huge for the program, um, and of course for Chad Morris. Um, but yeah, it was just really exciting to see. Of course, the Penn State upset of Ohio State is just insane because, I mean, Ohio State, you know, Ohio State and Bama are the two teams that I love to see lose because they're just the perennial, you know, big bad guys there, you know, hanging over uh, the rest of the college football scene is sort of like, you know, shoe-ins for the college football playoff. But really exciting weekend in college football. I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what happens here in the next week. Yeah, one more game uh, that kind of stuck out to me was Louisville knocking off North Carolina State 54-13. to And, uh, you know, they look to be one of the best teams in the country right now, but they are sitting behind Clemson in that ACC mess. And I don't know if they're going to be one of the top four teams for the playoffs because they were looking at that U of H game uh, to potentially give them one more quality win. And, you know, with U of H faltering to SMU, uh, to me that makes it more of a challenge to see Louisville potentially make it into that Final Four. But a uh, crazy week of college football. And, uh, Kevin, what your final thoughts. Well, you know, I actually saw Chad Morris out at the Barry Center or Cypher FCU Stadium, as it's now called. He was out there scouting a Cypher player, um, Cypher SD player, and you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time because I just assumed Houston was going to roll in that game. I really should have taken the opportunity to, I don't know, break his kneecaps or something because I feel like I could have had an impact on that game, and I would have gladly taken you know a light jail sentence for assault for my team, but. Um, uh, you know, just I had no idea the evil I was sitting next to when uh, when Chad Morris was out watching the game. I actually was very cordial to him. So that's uh, that's on me, guys. I- I'll take that one. Yeah, Chad Morris is uh, one of the hottest names in college football. He's entering year two. Uh, I guess he is in year two right now at SMU. He's a former offensive coordinator at Clemson. He has ties to Texas as a former Texas high school football coach. He's also been rumored as a potential candidate for the Baylor opening that we will have at the end of the 2016 season. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Chad Morris and if he stays at SMU or if he goes somewhere else. He has a high-octane offense or uh, pony-up tempo, if you will. But uh, congratulations to uh, Penn State and SMU on the big wins this week. Weekend. And uh, we appreciate all of you for listening to the podcast. If you like the work that we do, we want to make sure that you follow us on social media. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, we want to thank Terrence Ganaway, Troy Rink, and Jenny Dial Creech for joining us on this week's show. And for my co hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 